welcome to tonight's episode of The Epic Pencil, a weekly evening of original fiction, conversations with writers, and more. I'm your host, Chris Watson. Thanks for joining me. Elaine White is a lover of all things beauty, business, lifestyle, and she's a typewriter enthusiast. She collects them and shares them at events, street fairs, and children's programs. She writes because it feels good and loves to get other people writing as well. She publishes her almost daily writings on Medium, as well as on her own blog, ElaineWhite.com. I enjoyed the opportunity to chat with Elaine recently about her writing, where she finds inspiration, and her collecting habit. Elaine, thanks so much for joining me, virtually speaking. So happy to be here, Chris. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great. I'm, I'm loving it. So, so this is a podcast about writing, and there's really no better place for me to begin than to ask you about your collection of classic typewriters, which <laughs> I love. I think they, they're, they're just beautiful pieces of, of machinery. Um, you know, why did you start collecting them? And also, why do you bring them to events to share with people? Um, well, I had no intention of collecting typewriters, except uh, one day I was at this uh, consignment store with my aunt and walked around. We go there all the time. And I see this big black royal, like an old school royal from the 40s. And the keys didn't really have uh, too many letters on it because they'd been kind of washed out from all the chemicals that they'd been cleaned with for years. And I look at it and it's, I had this feeling come over me, like a familiarity. And so I said to my aunt, what is going, what, why am I, what, what's going on with this typewriter? And she said, well, your grandmother had one in her bedroom when you were growing up and you just totally must have forgotten that. So I all of a sudden saw my grandmother's typewriter in her bedroom. She typed all the letters to us because her handwriting was so terrible. And she would type all these recipes for me on little index cards. And so um, I started to type on it. And all of a sudden, this flood came over me of just, just crazy joy. So I, it was $40. I bought it, got it home, and realized that I don't type on these. You know, I, I, don't, I didn't learn how to type on an old manual typewriter. We had electric typewriters when we were learning in school, in high school. But still, the principle is the same. So I started typing to it every day. Dear old gal, I called it. Dear old gal. And I ended up with like a 20-page letter to the typewriter. And then I realized, oh my gosh, they're not making these anymore. I have to collect them. I have to save them. So I started ordering them like one a week. And all of a sudden I ended up with 45 of them in a year and a half and um, just pretty much lost my mind. That's what happens when you become addicted to collecting. So now you, you bring them to events. Um, I know you brought one uh, to the, our local library. Uh, I know you brought them to school events, things like that. Why do you... Why do you do that? What are you hoping to get out of it? What are you hoping to share with the adults and the kids who are at those? Well, before COVID, um, I was on this absolute mission for people to put their phones down and stop all this wacky technology and look up. Created this website, Time to Look Up, because I just felt like everybody was walking around all the time, down, down all the time. So I decided that typewriting was a great way to pause and to kind of get back into the groove of the flow of being connected with the linear part of your brain and the creative part of your brain. Because when you're typing, you're thinking, but it's like driving a stick shift versus an automatic or rolling down a window instead of having a push button. And so what I noticed is that the kids would hit the button and I mean the, uh, the key and they would, they'd like their whole being would uh, just lighten up. 
So then they started to want to do more. And then they'd be like, what's that ding sound? And so I just became addicted to sending them to every kid I could get to type. So I put, sometimes I put them on my front sidewalk. So when kids are walking by, they'll just type on them. But now, you know, they're all kind of away because people can't touch things. And it's kind of been sad. Ironically, I haven't been mm-hmm. able to use them as much. Like you, I also learned on those, those electric, like the, the selectric, yeah. you know, where, <laughs> where, you know, you had the, the typing teacher and you had to just sit there and, you know, see yeah, if you could get up to, you know, 40 words a minute. Um, do you use a typewriter now, now that you have the collection, now that you've sort of rediscovered the joy of the manual typewriter? Do you ever go back and actually do any of your own writing on them? I do. Uh, I started this idea at the first uh, street fair where I wanted to practice writing fiction because I always write, you know, life stuff and essays and personal memoir stuff. So I thought, oh, let me give myself a challenge. So I told everybody that was that came to the table to type that if they put a dollar in an envelope, uh, that I would, uh, and, and on the back of the envelope, they would write one word and their name and their age. And they'd, they'd address the front of the envelope and that I would send them a one-page typed story that included that one word as a fictional piece. And I think I ended up with like, oh my God, Chris, like 45 of them that I had to write. And so I think I got through like 35 of them. I, th- I don't even know where the envelopes are now. I, I'm, I'm sure they'll end up, people are probably wondering, where's my dollar? So, cause I've ended up being a broker for some typewriters for kids. The parents call me and say, my daughter really wants a typewriter. And then I, find one for them and they have no idea what to do when they get it. So it's really been enlightening. So obviously, you know, people coming and, and, you know, making contributions so that you would write something, you know, that's one source, Uh, you know, straight up writing prompts is another source, but what are other sources of inspiration for you? for the types of things that you write? What really compels you to put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard? Um, uh, I, it's like a photograph. You know, when you talk to photographers and they always have their camera with them and they see something and they want to snap a picture. For me, I, be, I can be out riding my bike and one line comes to me, you know, 10 days left. Or, I mean, I, my title comes first and then I write a piece. Mm-hmm. And it just flows really fast. And it's, it's almost like if I don't get it out of my body, I'm going to combust. So I, I like the fact that I just have constant visions of, of titles that just pop into my head. And they're usually related to something that's going on in my yard or in my life or just something that I reflect on. But it, it always feels to me like a photograph, mm-hmm. a photograph of a, of a thought. Cool. And then I put the words down. That's that's an interesting perspective, and that idea of the words that are in you they they've got to find some sort of exit. You know that, that they if they stay in you, that that it's going to be it's going to be a problem. That you've got to find some means of of expressing them. Yeah. So when you're writing, whether or not it's because you've suddenly had that inspiration, or you sit down because you you have a deliberate need to write, is there a particular process? that you follow? Do you always have to use the same pen or be in the same place? Um, you know, if you write something and then you plan to come back to it and look at it later on in a draft, do you sort of follow the same process or timing there or do you just kind of wing it? Is it different every time? <laughs> I just love, I love talking to you about writing because I, 
because you've been such a good ally with me in writing. But um, I always, when I'm writing for the purpose of putting it on Medium or my or my um, blog, I always write on my laptop because I don't want to have to type something that I've written. Unless I'm at the beach, that's a little different. But um, I usually sit on my front porch or on my couch. I have like about six different sitting spots that I love. I always have a cup of coffee. I always write in the morning. And usually it's as soon as I wake up, I'll maybe do a little exercise, get my coffee, go into the garden. And then I sit and I write. Um, and usually it's probably one to two hours. I'll write it. I'll think about it. I'll write it more. I'll keep going with that. And then, you know, as you know, I don't do a boatload of edits. I've gotten a little better at editing because I kind of like, it's like, it's almost like it's got to come out of me and I got to get it out, you know? And that's been a really good process for me uh, because I haven't been attached to perfection with it. And um, that's been a bit liberating until I met you. And then now I feel like I have to be more of a perfectionist. <laughs> writing, a lot of pressure to be friends with you. <laughs> and you're making me feel awful. No, no, it's good. It's all good. It's, all it's done is improved my writing. But um, when I go back to some of the original things, when I first started writing and putting it on medium, I kind of cringe because I, I just, was, it was real. Like I, I never would even barely do an edit. So now at least I go back and I probably do about two or three quick edits. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always have to write it and then get it out. It can't sit there. I wish I was the type of person that could write a piece and then, you know, go back to it the next day and the next day and then post it. I can't, I got to get it out fast. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a movement. It's a quick movement for yeah. me. So you've worked on a lot of different kinds of writing. You mentioned sort of fiction, though that's not something that you've necessarily done a lot of, but you've done some business writing, you've done memoir, uh, especially on the sort of the, both the business side as a, as a, as a business owner and providing uh, suggestions and guidance to people, as well as the stuff you do on the blog, which is sort of ob- you know, observational some, in some cases, things that are going on now, as well as memoir. Do you find that there's kind of an overlap between your voice and personality, does that filter into both, you know, sort of the, the more formal kind of business stuff as well as the memoir? Do you sort of try and keep those separate or is it impossible to sort of separate your personality and your attitude, you know, from the different kinds of writing that you do? Mm. Well, I think because my, you know, my, my introduction line is I'm a lover of all things, you know, beauty, business, and lifestyle, and everything is intertwined with me. So business is my life and beauty and beauty is my life and business. And I love to talk about all three of those things and write about them. So when I'm writing my business information, my business book that I've been working on, it's got a lot of very um, familiar thematic elements to it that you'd probably recognize in the way that I write my essays and my look on life. And even the way I write about beauty, because I write that for my, for my actual business as opposed to business skill sets. Um, so I think they all overlap. I'm, I'm, I'm seldom formal. And I think that's what I love about my writing actually is the lack of formality to it. And that's tends to be the, the positive feedback I get from it when I post it. Cause it's mm. very relatable. Some people have said, you know, kind of like modern Irma Bombeck or Nora Ephron, like that kind of, you know, it's, it's a lot of funny 
reflections on mm -hmm. being a female in the life that I'm in. And that's what I find the most joyful to write about. I'd love to ask you to share one of your pieces if you want, if you'd like, you know, sort of whatever you'd like to share. Uh, if you want to provide a little sort of background or context, or if you want to just dive right into it. All right. I'll, I'll just dive into it because I think it's a good example of one of the things that I like to write about, which is, um, you know, a lot of female energy. So this is called um, a smart, I put that in quotation marks, scale, a smart scale. And um, I think I wrote it, I have a date somewhere, but I can't remember when. I want to say like probably two years ago. <clears throat> okay. What is that? I asked Michael, my partner, the love of my life, the man I share my stories, hopes, and dreams with. I had looked down on the floor of his living room to see this perfectly flat, square, thin contraption sitting there, waiting, calling me. I had a feeling it was a scale, but I just had to ask, because normally scales find their homes in bathrooms on the floor next to the sinks and toilets, and this modern-looking shiny black square was by the front door, looking kind of like it was headed to the rubbish bin on trash day, she said with her hands in prayer position. We'll need to put your info in the app for it, he said excitedly, like I was actually going to stand on this contraption and allow it to record not only my weight, but my body fat, bone mass, protein, and a list of other physical attributes I didn't know I was supposed to be recording. He moved like a lynx to his phone to open up the app that connects with the scale. Apparently, I'm supposed to stand on this and allow it to do whatever it does, and it takes all of this information and submits it through Bluetooth to the app that Michael has downloaded on his phone. It is here that he, with a twinkle in his eye, told me he could set up my own account on his app. Then, like he had just discovered one of life's great mysteries, he opened up the app to reveal his entire health profile, including, of course, his weight without even a brief pause. I love this about most men I know. Weight is not a thing. 198, he said. 198 on a man who is a little over six feet that is mostly made up of stunning runner's legs I only hope to obtain in my next life if we get to choose. This man knows me better than anyone. He knows the insides of me, my fears, my angst, my dreams, my strengths, and my weaknesses. He knows my schedule, how I think, almost. So when he said this so matter-of-factly, like this was even going to be a remote possibility, I laughed out loud. That is so funny, Michael. No, I am not putting my information on your app. Do you even know me? Insert laugh, chuckle, snicker here. I detected the tiniest tone of wound in his voice. I was just showing you how it worked. You could probably put the app on your phone and do it too, he said so sweetly, sweetly with patient empathy. Insert another small laugh here. That will not be happening. I hate the scale. I hate the number. I hate that the whole thing invokes in me and almost every woman I know. It is a downer. If the number is higher than I thought, I'm depressed. If it's lower than I thought, it validates that what I'm doing is in fact working and I feel like I will never be able to have a glass of wine or a piece of my friend's delicious cheesecake again. Or it says, that's all? I have been following food plan number 5,000 and I didn't lose 10 pounds in a week? Completely ludicrous, insane, self-defeating, every single opposite of how I live my life in my fun and Elaine's brain world. That scale, though, it gets to me. I allow it to get to me, and I don't know how to change the pattern, the belief. It has layers and years of layers dating back to my grandmother's own issues with weight. I try to self-talk my way through the brain fuck that is the topic of weight. Yes, I am alive. I am healthy. I am fit. I am strong. All of that. But that pesky scale gets the better of me. So I choose no. I will not get on a scale that records a plethora of information. 
I will not put myself in the vulnerable position of wirelessly communicating my health to my partner's phone and then likely transmits the information to big tech so they can have their way with my health data and however they choose. We so carelessly hit the I agree button because they damn well know that we are not going to read the document they force us to sign for the access to the app in the first place. And who knows if the data that's being recorded is even correct. I compare it to the variety of mirrors I have found myself staring back at myself. Some, like the one at Jackie's Loft, my local clothing store, is like a magic mirror. No matter what I try on, I look amazing, svelte even. I think it is a thinning mirror. God forbid I should think that this reflection staring back is how I really look. Michael has one of these in his closet too. I can look at myself in a variety of outfits and the reflection staring back is one of a thinner version of how I think I really look, but I'll take it. The bizarre aspect of the mirrors and the scales are that what if the lower number and thinner mirror is actually the way I am? What if the scale that says the higher number or the mirror that adds so, so much breadth to my hips because it never adds to my upper half, a part of my body even before breast reconstruction was satisfying to me, what if that one is wrong? All of this sounds crazy and completely fucked up, but it is part of my gene pool and who I am. Someone that no matter how much I try to meditate the negative thoughts away, it is like they are intrinsic to my femaleness. Arg. I think of the AA phrase, progress, not perfection. Yes, I totally understand that this world of advertising and catalogs coming at us does not help the cause of body delight. Even the thinnest, healthiest women I know, you know, the ones that can throw on a pair of leggings and tennis shoes, throw their hair up in a messy blonde ponytail, seemingly without a glance in the mirror on the outside, have their own weight and body image demons. This I know because I have open conversations with women every day of my life and have for the last almost 30 years in the beauty business. I'm not sure if the scale will ever be my friend. My beautiful Dr. Wiggins always says, Elaine, you look great. The scale is just a number. I know what she's really saying is, Elaine, give yourself a fucking break. I am trying really every day, but in my opinion, if the scale were really truly a smart scale, as it self-proclaims, you would step up onto the two feet outlined for yours to fit into and it would talk back. It would say, the number is only a number. So today I give you a free pass. Go for a walk, smell the earth, look up, smile at a stranger and breathe deeply. Be grateful that today, again, like yesterday, you got to wake up and have the luxury of stepping on the scale today. There is no number today. So enjoy your day and stop all this unnecessary fretting. You are alive. This is your day today. Enjoy it. That was great. Thank you, know, you very much for sharing that. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading it and I was thinking, actually, it's so funny because that was two years ago and I don't even give a shit about the scale anymore. I don't even get on a scale. I don't, I don't care about weight. And, and it almost feels almost contrite just right, right, uh, talking about it with all the crap that's going on. But I thought that it would be a nice distraction from this past three months of absolute mayhem and hell and right. horribleness in the world. Well, I, I think, I, hope it's, uh, I, I think, I think it's a really great example of the style that you have where you are. I love how open you can be about your own sort of thoughts and responses to things. And you have a wonderful mix of the humor and the profound. You know, you. the, you know, the line, you know, just the, uh, the, the fun in Elaine's brain world, 
you know, is, <laughs> I mean, that, it's just a, that's just a fun line, but then your, your musings on body health and, uh, and the expectations is, is very powerful because so many people, um, have to deal with that and and you put it in such a way that it's very accessible i think yeah. to, to people thank you you know and especially around such a you know i think i think you're right the idea of the scale people people are terrified of getting on the scale you know yeah. and it's like dear god i don't want to step on there and see the number go up and and, and i think you captured that really the well. number is never right i mean it, it like and i don't mean that in a way that it's just it's never satisfying mm-hmm I mean, right. and even if it was the perfect number, that would just give me the excuse to eat every single night ice cream and drink <laughs> wine for like two two weeks straight, which would get the number back up. It's so crazy. It's did, crazy. You ever, did you ever hear the um, a Mr. Rogers' quote about his weight? Yeah, something about it adds up to the... Well, he, he was always 143 pounds. Yeah. And he loved it because that one, four, and three are the same number of letters as in I love you. Yeah, that's right. That's which right. which I thought was just really nice. So in that, so there's someone who's who has taken the number and found something, you know, profound and and fulfilling mm. out of it. But I think that that's a rarity for people. Yeah, you know, I don't think most well, people can do that. I'm certainly not like that. No, and and you know, it's funny because I write a lot about women, and I do have men come into my business, and sometimes they feel a little bit left out, and they'll correct me. You know, if I say something like. Hi, all you women out there, if I'm doing, you know, a, a video or something, and, and I have a few clients who will send back and go, and men. <laughs> like sometimes you forget that they have, you know, that they have feelings too, and they have problems too, but I always just feel like I would connect with the women out there, so. A lot of writers that I know are really voracious readers. They grew up being readers as kids. Were you a, were you a big reader as a kid? Or are you a big reader now? Uh, I was a a big reader as a kid not not esme level reading but mm-hmm. uh, but I definitely read and I'm definitely a big reader now I read a lot more now than I probably did 10 years prior my mm-hmm. my partner reads he's a just reads all the time and so I um I I got into the habit of going to the library instead of buying books and for some reason that has been such a a motivator for me because there's something so glorious about getting the book, having it be there when you're, when you get there, you get it back and you have to read it in a certain amount of time. And I like the walking to the library. I like the smell of the book and the crinkly sound of the outside of the book. It reminds me of the same grandmother that collected typewriters. She mm-hmm. always was at the library. So I think there's a, a connection there. Cool. Did you have a favorite book when you were a kid? Um, I, I had three favorite books that I loved. Um, one was Harriet the Spy, which I, I just loved. Oh, I love that. It was a great book. Um, I also loved um, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, which was just a game changer for me in, mm-hmm. I think, fourth grade. Judy Bloom. she was just such a good writer for, for young pre-adolescent girls. Although my friend Tracy just informed me that um, it's, not, it's not really good for girls because it's very kind of boy-focused, which I don't remember. So and I feel like I should read it again from my perspective because back then it was you know it was, you know we grew up with like silly ads that would say things like 
boys don't make passes at girls that wear glasses. You know, I mean, it's just so unbelievable that we grew up with that. You know, and, and that we'd read books that would say things like that. We, and we didn't even think anything about it. So Tracy reminded me, no, no, Elaine, that's not good. And then my, my biggest, my fa- most favorite book that I read was um, Diary of Anne Frank. Um, and it's interesting because all three of those books have kind of journalesque qualities to them. And I started journaling when I was in third grade, when I, um, I think I'd read Harriet the Spy in maybe third, third or fourth grade. And I, and Diary of Anne Frank helped me realize that I didn't have to journal every single day for it to be a journal, that I could, I could space a few days and I could write once a week. There was not this rule and regulation that, that I, for some reason, had in my head. Um, and so that got me writing a lot because I saw how journaling was a good expression of your body and what you needed to get out of your mind. So I think those three books as a kid really changed my my uh, outlook on mm-hmm. on writing. I think they, they informed my writing a lot. So <clears throat> with those three books in mind, and they could be part of the answer to this question, do you... Do you recall an experience, uh, you know, a time where you were sort of struck by the power of language? You know, maybe you, it was a play or a, a book that you read or a speech or um, just the way someone used words in a classroom. Is there anything that where you were like, wow, that's really powerful. That really affected me and, and the words that, and how they've been used. Mm. Well, when I was in seventh grade, or maybe it was eighth grade, we had, um, actually, let me go backwards for a second, because it's kind of interesting. I had this really strange process happen that I, that I just am starting to realize its impact on me now. This is not really an answer to the question, but I think it's important. When I was in um, first grade, I had a teacher named Miss Foley, and she was one of those commanding white-haired women with the, the skirts and the, the, the tight shoes and old and crotchety. And I had one of those. She was scary. <laughs> and I don't think she liked me too much. But she was the type of person that when you had a spelling test, like, you know, you learned little, there was, remember those little lined paper and you'd have mm-hmm. to write the words. Maybe it was like cat, bat, I don't know. Right. Um, you write the word down. And if she would walk around up and down the aisles very slowly and she would look down her nose at everybody and she would say the word and you'd write it in pencil. And then if you spelled it wrong and you realized you spelled it wrong and you erased it, you'd still get it wrong. That was the way she taught. And she ruined my writing for me because I had such a fear with her as I, as I got older writing. One day I was taking a writing class. It was one of my first writing classes I took when I was you know, newly married. I was in, in Bristol, so it was, you know, I don't know how old I was, maybe 28 or something. And um, this woman was teaching it. And she was trying to get us to write there's a name for this type of writing where you write like from your head and you don't write with any emotion. There's a, there's a name to that type and you just, it's like very factual writing, but it can have a lot of power to it, but you can't really write it with emotion. And I was getting very frustrated with it because as you know, you've, you've heard me speak. I mean, my, all my writing is just layered with emotion. So 
I was finding it super challenging and I didn't feel like it. So I put the pen down and I said, I'm not doing this. I don't want to do this. I feel like I'm in Miss Foley's class, she said to me. And she, she stopped the whole class and she said, who's Miss Foley? And I said, oh, she was my second or maybe my second grade teacher. And I went on this big thing. She said, oh, you're going to write about her. And so I wrote about her the following week. And it was like I purged her out of my body. And I wrote this really lethal piece about how she impacted me as a kid. And I didn't realize how much I'd been holding on to, but that experience actually freed me. And it allowed me to write, like really, really open myself up. Because before that, I think I always had this like stuck in a box kind of writing. And um, what's happened over the years, though, is that as I write more, when I go to write something or go to type something, I can actually hear Miss Foley's voice a little bit now correcting some spelling word which isn't really a word that she would have been correcting and it's almost like we've had this this exchange of kumbaya like wow maybe she was actually doing this to help me instead of to hinder me Mm. and I didn't interpret it that way because she was so big and scary but maybe that's what she was trying to do and I, I kind of forgave her in my writing and I use her as like a little side like a sidearm now when she she doesn't come up that much but you know, there is that whole com- commentary about muses in your writing, right? So I don't want to say, I'm, I would never give her the credit of being a muse. <laughs> no, she wouldn't deserve that. But I kind of like that I've made peace with it. So th- I know that's kind of a weird answer to your, your question, but I, I think that it started there. And I like, I, like to, I like to give her a little bit of honor and a little bit of forgiveness. No, I, 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 I don't think that it's weird at all. Um, when I was in high school, I had a teacher like that. She was the oldest teacher in the department. She was the the head of the department and she could be brutal. She, you know, and she didn't take anything. And she knew when you, when you hadn't read the book and, you know, or, and um, she, with me, she just didn't like the way I wrote. She didn't like what I wrote. And there was a, um, an essay contest, a statewide essay contest. And I had written something and she had, not given in a very good grade, but I, I liked it. I thought it was pretty good. And I, and I said, well, I'm going to submit it. And she goes, well, you're not going to win. And I said, <laughs> well, I'm going to submit it anyway. And then a couple of weeks later, I'm in her class and the phone rings. This was, you know, when they had the, you know, the phones and she went and she answered it and she said, you need to go down to, uh, down to the principal's office. And I was like, okay, I, I hadn't I had done anything wrong. <laughs> And I went downstairs and he informed me that I had won the contest. Uh, and, and, I went back up, and I went back upstairs and it was just, it was like I floated into the classroom. And in front of the class, she's like, what was that about? And I said, turns out I won that statewide contest. I, I took my seat and, you know, it was just, it, 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 it was, it was just letting that go. It was kind of the purge where all of a sudden it's like, yeah, she could say whatever she wanted, but she was wrong. Yeah. And, but, but- but I was probably a better writer because she had beaten me up so much. Yeah. But yeah. then you think sometimes like, I wonder how many people we lost as great writers because yes. of that too. Yes. That's I think the that's, part that's sad. I know. Because I know when I've done some writing workshops at the library with, with little kids, you know, that are in seventh grade and their writing is just so good. You know, it's so seventh grade, but it's so good. And you're sitting there and you're just giving them encouragement and their whole being is lit up because they don't need to hear, 
deep criticism and let's there are they already knocked themselves down enough they don't mm-hmm. need me to tell them that something wasn't right uh and i really have liked i've enjoyed that that's been fun doing those little classes with the kids i love their writing the young writing it's so fabulous that's great well my my what's now becoming sort of my traditional final question on these types of interviews it's kind of a broad one but why do you write Oh, I write seriously because it feels good. I mean, I like to feel good and I write because if I don't write, I, my heart races and I have anxiety and stress. And it's interesting because this morning I was on a a zoom, you know, 4 million zoom meeting of the past three months. And I, my heart was racing. And I said to the two people I was on the call with, I can't settle down. I'm like, my heart is really racing. And so one of them said, do you think you should go to the hospital? I said, no, no, absolutely not. But I just can't settle down. And as I'm talking to you tonight, I'm realizing that, you know, I have not written since George Floyd, I have not written and posted except in our writing group. And I think that I've just not known what to say. I felt so quiet and insignificant and I don't feel like I have much to offer. And every time I've made an attempt to write something, it feels frivolous. And so I think part of the challenge that I'm having right now in this racing heart is that I haven't really written and posted for a couple of weeks. And I'm, I'm recognizing that right now. So I'm guessing what's going to happen is tomorrow morning, I'm going to write again. Like, but I think sometimes that voice needs to go quiet. Um, and, uh, and it's probably not good for my health, but it's probably a necessity when it comes to yeah these horrible situations that we've been going through. Well, Elaine White, thank you very much for joining me on the Epic Pencil. This has been a great deal of fun. Thank you for sharing uh, your piece about uh, the smart scale and and your experiences writing as well as your passion for it. It it really comes through and it's been just a joy talking to you. It's been so fun, Chris. Can't wait to see you again. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. If you're interested in more of Elaine's writing, you can find her on Medium, as well as at elainewhite.com. That's A-L-A-Y-N-E white.com. Thanks for listening this week. Next week, we'll return to some more original writing in the face of a panic attack. Until we read again, I encourage you to enjoy a great book or two and remember to support your local independent booksellers. The content of the Epic Pencil is copyright 2020 by Christopher Watson.